You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of interstate battery retail stores all over the United States. So whether you need a a new truck battery, which by the way, I've heard that they are some of the best in the automotive industry, right? A truck battery, a car battery. If you need batteries for something as simple as a remote control or a unique battery for a rangefinder or one of your children's toys, uh Interstate Batteries not only has those batteries available, if they don't have them, they can order them for you, or if you need to find out more about a specific battery battery or the specs of a specific battery, stop into their retail store and talk with a battery specialist. These guys are very knowledgeable about what products they offer and what it is that you need for whatever battery you're looking for. So, Stop in to a local retail store or visit interstatebatteries.com to learn more about their company, the batteries that they offer, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So check out interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. And today we are going to talk about Pittman-Robertson. So Pittman-Robertson is that federal fund of money that helps support conservation and wildlife in this country. A lot of you may already know about this. We kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, how how Pittman-Robertson is funded, how the funds are allocated. And the reason we wanted to talk about this is it seems like there's going to be, or there are, a lot of new people that are either getting into hunting or interested in hunting because of this sort of global crisis, because of the pandemic, because some people experience not being able to go to the grocery store and buy meat. So there's people that are looking at other ways, other alternatives. And if you're one of those people, great. This will be a good episode for you. If you know somebody that falls into that boat, this can help give you some talking points or help educate you so you can educate them. So that's why we wanted to talk about this today. Before we get into that, I want to talk about our sponsor, Mastin's Deer Sense. Mastin's is a deer scent company, as the name implies, and we are getting very close to deer season. So time to start thinking about your strategy, what tools you're going to implement in your toolkit, the other good thing that you can use scent for is getting deer in front of your camera. So if you're if you're working on putting that hit list together, right? You want to see how the bucks are developing. Scent is a great way to do that. So Mastin's has 
tons of different scents. You can use them in different combinations and the prices are great. So check them out, mastinsdeersense.com. And with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? Okay, so today we've got sort of a, uh, I'm, I'm sort of considering this a somewhat timely episode uh, because there's a lot of gun and ammo buying activity going on right now because of the pandemic, the riots, you know, there's a lot of people buying guns and ammo, a lot of first time gun buyers. And so that leads to money going into Pittman Robertson, that fund of money that helps fund conservation in this country. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, a lot of you may already know about Pittman and Robertson. We're going to kind of do an overview and hopefully maybe, I guess, include some details that maybe you didn't know or, you know, or maybe you had a sort of a surface level understanding of how it worked. And, and maybe this will hopefully be a maybe somewhat more in-depth uh understanding this you know this is by no means a a law or or tax class here so you know i mean we're not talking the college level education here but just thought it would be a good time to review that discuss that and uh hopefully we can all learn something from that but as usual before we get into the the topic any updates, anything going on? It's We're recording this the day after the 4th of July, so July 5th. So we had, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody had some sort of uh, 4th of July festivities. I know <laughs> I was telling these guys through text, uh, you know, my house turned into a little bit of a, uh, what do I want to call it, a, a, a freedom free-for-all, maybe? <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to put it. Uh, lots of lots of uh, private fireworks shows going on around my house. People shooting guns, you know, nine ten o'clock at night shooting tannerite explosives. So, it, I mean, I don't know if it was tannerite, but that you know, binary explosives, if you will. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, quite loud last night, and and surprisingly. Ella slept through most of it. Once once we got her to sleep, you know, through through the barrage of fireworks and explosions, she slept through all of it. So I was happy about that. Yeah. So any updates uh, you guys have since we talked last week? I don't think I have anything in relation to hunting, fishing, podcast necessarily. Um just trying to do a little bit of stuff here and there out at the property, trying to a little bit at a time to try and get stuff ready for the season. 
scouting, trying to learn anything I can that's different. But at this point, it's just kind of the heat of summer and it's hot out there. So <laughs> it is, man. It's a the the midday. It cools off pretty good in the evenings, and like this morning, you know, you got up and it was not bad at all. You know, first thing this morning, but then it heats up pretty quick. Jeff, anything for you? Well, just on a kind of a secretarial type of stuff, uh, the ODNR's controlled hunts have been released, like what hunts they're going to have this year. Um, You can apply now. Um, And all ODNR controlled hunts are going to be done through uh, the website this year, online application. In the past, some of the hunts were in-person application. Um, Because of COVID, they are not doing any of those. Um, So if you typically apply for one of those ones in person, you're going to need to go to the website and apply. um, Because by the time typically those drawings are, you know, the in-person ones were this year, the application will be closed. It closed the end of July. Yeah, they're only given like a month. The application period is is basically the month of July, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, so don't wait around on those. Right. Don't want to don't want to miss out. So And Jeff, I think you shared a link on our social media pages for to that takes you to that that page on the ODNR and there's links to the the application portal and the PDF download that lists all the hunts and everything, right? Right. Yep. Okay. So for me, I guess I'll give an update on my, uh, skull maceration project. So I've been soaking this. I, you guys know me, I went down the rabbit hole, right? My original plan was like this skull, I boiled it in the fall and, you know, all that stuff, you know, like that intricate stuff around the the earbuds and, like, those real tough, I guess they're tendons or ligaments or whatever, where the, you know, where that connect to the back of the skull. Like, I just, it seems like I can boil and boil and boil and that stuff never really wants to come off. And so I end up with these skulls that are, like, 90% there, don't really feel like they're ready to be brought into the house. But I don't want to, you know, I'm like boiling. You got to kind of stand there and watch them, make sure they're not boiling over or they're not getting too hot or, you know, you didn't run out of propane, flame didn't go, you know, you got to babysit it. I don't have time or desire to sit there and babysit this thing. So I thought, you know, I'm going to soak this. I'm just going to let it soak in warm water and let that stuff basically rot off of there. Mm Mm-hmm. It works great. Like this skull right now, it's still soaking, but it's, it's by far cleaner than any skull I've ever done. But like I said, I went down the rabbit hole and I've been watching some videos and like any skulls that anybody has out there that still has a little bit of, uh, like yellow or, brown coloring to it that 
that's basically fat deposits, I guess, that's still in the bone. And so now I'm I'm just soaking with Dawn dish soap in there, you know, dish soap in there to basically try to degrease these things. So so warm water and, and soap to try to degrease them. And some of the videos I've seen, like these guys just through soaking them in, in water with dish soap, I mean, they get the bone so white even before bleaching that you almost don't need to bleach them. You know, I mean, obviously bleaching them gives you like that really white color. But so now I'm, you know, it's turned into more of a, more of a project than I originally intended because, Uh uh, you know, I went down the rabbit hole, but it's, it's very low maintenance, if you will. You know, it's, you just put it in a bucket of water. I've got a fish tank, an an old fish tank heater that I had for a, another project that wasn't a fish tank, <laughs> but, um, so I'm just using that to keep the water, you know, 90 degrees and you just let it soak. That was my question. How are you? So you have to have something to keep the water warm. Well, uh, originally let, uh, cause you weren't on last week's episode, right? I think that's when we originally talked about this, but, or whenever I originally talked about this, you weren't on the episode and initially I was putting it in this bucket in the attic of my barn and it gets smoking hot up there. And so that's how I was. And I was, I honestly, I thought I was going to open my, the door to my barn and just the whole barn was going to stink like rot. And it didn't like once you got upstairs, you could smell it, but it wasn't, I, I expected it to be worse than it is. I mean, when you when you get to working with it and you dump that bucket of water out and, you know, you stir things up, you, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, you get a face full of rot. But and it will like after it had been soaking for a while, probably a week, it was it was pretty clean. And I was just kind of hosing it off with like the jet spray on my my hose nozzle and, you know, just kind of picking at little pieces that were on there. That was like holding the skull and and fooling around with it was enough to like get that smell in my fingers. And so like an hour later, I'm like, man, did I get like, do I have a piece of rotten flesh on my pants somewhere that I didn't see or like what? And then I realized it was my hands. I, you know, and I'd washed them just with, you know, regular bathroom soap. But then I went and washed them with orange pumice soap you know and that after that they were fine but so it is a little stinky it's not something you want to do like in your garage I, I would say but if you have a place you know out of the way where you can do this it's it's uh I think I'll do it more now granted you know the stink level is probably worse if you just put a, a freshly skinned head in there you know keep in mind this head was boiled and was, you know, 90% there. There was just like that little bit of stuff that, you know, is hard to get off. Maceration gets that stuff off with very little elbow grease. You just let it soak and let the bacteria do its thing. If you can deal with the smell and have somewhere to, to put it to where, because the smell I'm sure is going to, you know, if you did it outside or something, you know, the smell I'm sure is going to attract critters that might want to carry your skull off so but so far so good 
Cool. I'll, I'll probably continue. I might continue this method, right? Like boil it in the fall to get most of that off. And then at that point, I can just let them sit in my garage until spring when the weather warms up and I'm not trying to fight to keep the water warm or keep the water from freezing or, you know, any of that stuff. But we'll see. So far, so good. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to post some pictures or something when I get it done. I did order some um, bleach stuff, you know, to, to end up bleaching the skull here. I think it's supposed to be here Thursday or something. Today's Sunday, so hopefully by then I've got it. <laughs> I've got it degreased to my satisfaction, and I can uh, right. I can bleach it. So cool. All right. Well. Pittman Robertson. So I guess I'll start with sort of a, the, the high level. And again, like I said at the beginning, if you already know this, it might be a good refresher. And like I said, there's a lot of new gun owners, people getting back into gun ownership or just flat out first time gun owners that it might be interesting to share this information with them and, you know, on a positive note, there should be a lot of money going into this fund, right? So Pittman-Robertson Act was signed into law in 1937, and it puts an 11% tax on the sale of firearms, firearm ammunition, archery equipment, and arrow components, and then distributes that money to state governments for wildlife projects, wildlife conservation, and uh, basically, that's it's it, that sort of fun or not funds forms the foundation of you know what what we all know as the North American model of conservation, wildlife conservation. So, Jeff, I think <laughs> we're going to refer to you as our as our um, law consultant since you you know you did yeah. uh, some criminal justice. You have a degree in right. criminal justice, right? So, yes, yeah, yeah. So if you want to kind of dig in, I know you dug yeah. into this a little deeper yeah. than that sort of surface yeah. level summary. Yeah, yeah. It's eleven percent. It's eleven percent uh, tax on the the wholesale price um, on long guns and ammunition and archery equipment, and then it's a ten percent tax on handguns. Oh, really? Yeah, and the handguns, the handguns and the archery ammunition, or sorry, the handguns and the archery equipment um, didn't start getting taxed till I think 1970. They amended it and added that tax. Okay. Um, and a portion of the money that comes from the handgun tax goes to you know, is immediately set aside for hunter education and uh, shooting ranges. Like it gets put, a portion of that gets put aside for hunters education and shooting ranges. Specifically from handgun sales. Specifically from handguns, yes. Okay. Or at least specifically when they made the handguns a portion of the, the act, they decided to put money aside for hunter edu- you know to, to take money right off the top of the of the 
fund and put it towards hunter education and shooting ranges. Okay. Yeah, I believe from what I was researching, I believe it's half of the pistol and well, handgun and revolver, I think is the way it's worded. Um, one half of that goes to hunter education. I'm not sure. I know it said something about shooting ranges also, but the actual right. amendment um, was in 1970 and it states one half of which may be used by the states for hunter safety programs. Yeah. And so. how this tax is collected is it, it is it's paid by the manufacturers and importers. And then they pass that expense on to the consumer. But when when the gun is either manufactured or the ammo is manufactured or imported, the tax is paid then. And then that expense is then passed on to the consumer. So when you go to the store, you know, you're not paying this tax as like a traditional sales tax as you would expect. Like it's tacked on to the price at the end. It's already factored into the advertised price that you see. Well, and the the retailer, like it doesn't show up on their books either, right? I mean, they're just buying at at their whatever their wholesale price, and that tax is already baked into that price, right? Right, right, right. Well, and I think just to before we get too far gone, too, I think it's important to. Um, note or make it known in case anyone doesn't know um, this act was you know and it was passed in 1937 the really cool thing about it is it wasn't something that the government said hey we're going to put a tax on these things um, the ammunition and firearm companies noticed that wildlife was disappearing at an alarming rate in the early 1900s and they actually asked the government to do this they wanted to pay this in order to build a conservation fund which i think makes it pretty cool definitely yeah i don't know if it's you know if this is the only time something like this has been done but you know i guess i guess you said it well it's it's pretty cool that that sportsmen you know whether you're you're hunting or not, you're you're a firearms enthusiast or you know, but that that subset of people that are typically the ones using the resource are the ones funding the resource. It just seems right. like a you know, like a, a a beautiful marriage, if you will. Of it just makes sense, right? If those are the people that are predominantly going to be using it then they fund it. Right. Right, yeah. And I mean, it, it made enough sense that they passed a very similar law, similar act for fishing. You know, right. uh, fishing equipment has a very similar tax um, that was implemented much later. And it was basically because Pittman Robertson worked, worked so well. Yeah. Yeah, and another article, or one of the articles I read, um, I didn't do the math to see exactly when it was written, but it would be over this amount now. Um, 
but it said that over $7 billion have been collected from manufacturers and made available to the states through this. And at the time of this article being written, it was 76 years. So I don't know, do the quick math, but. That's a lot of money. uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's significantly higher than that because, you know, now because the most recent numbers I saw for, you know, annual numbers um, was 2018. And I think 2018 was, uh, I think, 700 or 800 million dollars. In one yeah, year. I just I Which, just did the quick quick math, and it looks like this article would have been from 2013. So that you know that's seven years ago. So I could yeah. see it being significantly higher. And yeah, we're we're at a record time right now for this um, for money collected. Um, you know what what people were calling the Obama boom happened, and gun and ammunition sales went up, and they expected uh, when Trump got in the office that those sales would diminish, and they really didn't. And as we can tell now, they're spiking again. They're going even higher. So right now we're kind of in an unprecedented time for ammunition and gun sales. So there's a lot of money being pumped in right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's I don't I don't I haven't seen any research on that, like the the gun sales, ammunition sales, like, you know, percentage increases or anything. But man, if any kind of like browsing around online, it becomes very apparent that, wow, people are people are buying guns and ammo right now. You know, there is a lot of out of stock notices on you know online guns and ammo retailers you know right so so that's how yeah money gets in do you know jeff firearms firearm ammunition is it firearm parts like guys that are building ar15s you know are they i guess they're probably paying the tax on the lower receiver, because that's considered the gun, the the firearm, right? But that's the serialized part. But the rest of the PC parts, is it? Does that tax get applied to those? Do you know? I'm I'm not sure, because um, they say it's applied to manufacturers, importers, and producers. So that might fall under the producer category, where if like you're buying, or like if you're a company that is custom you know they're buying gun parts and then they're custom building guns sure it might get applied then like okay. to the to the finished product um because i i don't know what a producer is i'm not sure what the definition of a firearm or manu or ammunition producer is versus a manufacturer okay so the money, the money is this is a national thing, right? So the money is collected nationally. It goes into this fund, and then that sort of brings us to how the money is 
distributed, right? Right. So did you guys right. look into that at all? Yeah, yeah. Let me pull this up again just so I can have it in front of me. Again, referencing the same article that I referenced earlier. So this is from 2013, but I don't believe these numbers have changed. It um, says that funds are distributed through the following process. Uh, $8 million is dedicated to enhanced hunter education programs, which includes construction or maintenance of public target ranges. $3 million is then set aside for projects that require cooperation among states. Um, so that's like five, like multiple state conservation programs. Um, and then the other, or sorry, one half, like we said before, one half of the excise tax collected on handguns is set aside for basic hunter education programs. And then um, the remainder of the fund is divided in half. 50% of that goes to the individual states based on land area of the state in proportion to the total land area of the country. So without looking at a map, you know, I mean, obviously Alaska gets the biggest portion of that. They're the largest land area. Texas would be the second, you know, going down from there. And then the other half is awarded to the states based on the number of individual paid hunting license holders in the state in proportion to the total hunting license sales for the country. So that's mm -hmm. where your states that have high hunting numbers or, you know, um, a lot of license holders. So your states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania that are known, I mean, Ohio is up there known for having a very large amount quote unquote, the orange army for whitetail hunters or whatever. Um, you know, I'm talking like Wisconsin has some hundreds and hundreds of thousands of license sales. Um, so that's how it's broken up based on what I came across. Okay. So Jeff, anything to add on to there or clarify on that? No, that, I mean, that was fairly accurate. Um, the only, I mean, I think kind of the next direction to kind of take this is uh, in relation to the hunting license, the paid hunting license sales. Um, it is a requirement to receive Pittman-Robertson funds that uh, 100% of that money collected has to go to wildlife. You can't use the money from your hunting license sales to go anywhere other than to conservation, your division of wildlife. So the state can't profit off of hunting license sales and use it to pave roads or whatever. Right. Right. They don't Which get any is... federal money if they do that. Right. Which I think is relatively timely for us here in Ohio because we just had a license hike. Um, in the last, you know, year or so, and a lot of guys were put off by that about the ODNR just taking more money. Um, so yes, the licenses do cost more, but they're not able to use that money for anything other than improving our habitat that we hunt here in the state. So although it does hurt to pay more, it's a little bit of a silver lining, I think. 
to know that it's not right. just padding some executive's pocket. I mean, that money really right. is and going towards improving our habitat and hunting and fishing, you know, whatever wildlife here in Ohio. Right. And in, in general, there are some exceptions to this. Um, for every dollar that is spent of Pittman-Robertson money, the state needs to spend, or for every three dollars, it's it's seventy five percent. So for every project that they're going to use Pittman Robertson money for, the state needs to pay for out of their pocket twenty five percent of that, and then the Pittman Robertson money can come in and pay for the other seventy five percent. And I believe before that hike in uh fees we didn't have enough money coming in to fully capitalize on the federal funds we could have been getting oh okay we didn't have enough money to get the full you know our full share because we couldn't afford to pay enough to get our share you know we couldn't afford to pay our 25 percent of the projects to get all of the money we were allotted. Well, and I also read that the state has to front the money and then they're reimbursed that 75%. So they submit a, cause I also read, you know, they've got to submit a plan to the interior secretary, how they're going to spend the money. The plan gets approved and then they've got to, they've got to be prepared to, pay the full cost up front and then the states are reimbursed for up to 75% of the cost through Pittman Robertson and then like you guys said the remaining 25% is usually paid through hunting license sales right right and also uh, it's a, a use it or lose it kind of system um, you know the states are allotted money and if they don't use it within, I don't remember off the top of my head what the time period is, um, it, they, they lose that money and it is redistributed out amongst all the states again. So I, I think it's two years. The article I'm looking at says if the money does not get spent after two years, it is reallocated to the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund. There you go. So... I guess is there, uh, so that's how we covered how the money gets in. We covered how the money comes out, <laughs> how it's sort of allocated, you know, because it is a national fund. It's a federally managed fund. How it's then distributed between the states, how they decide who gets how much money, and sort of the protections or the... Um, what do I want to call it? The measures that have been put in place to make sure the money is being spent appropriately. Is there anything else we need or want to cover on this one? Well, I think the next thing to kind of cover uh, is just how important this is to wildlife and hunting and conservation, you know, in America. 
if you're starting to think about deer season, deer hunting, and your strategy, if deer feed is part of that strategy, I encourage you to check out Monster Whitetail Grub. They make a great product. They've got a couple different products. They've got their signature feed. It's a high protein feed with mineral mixed in. It, uh, it really works well. We've had really good success with it. They've got flavored corn, so it takes just your standard corn up a notch, and they've got mineral. So whatever you need, they have, and they're great things to use this fall when you're trying to get your deer. So check them out. Go to ohiohuntsman.com sponsors, and you can find information there on how to get in touch with them and try some of their stuff. Now, let's get back into the conversation. Most articles I read say that the Pittman-Robertson Act plus hunting license sales pays for roughly 80% of the conservation work done in the United States. And that's not just for game species, but all wildlife. And I think in Ohio, it's even a higher percentage than 80 so this is this is the funding force, you know, hunting and the sale of the Pittman-Robertson Act, um, you know, sales is what funds wildlife in the United States. Yeah. That's like, I mean, that's a good point, right? It's, it's, it's not like this money it's not like it happens accidentally, right? This is like it or not. We're in a, a time in history when wildlife is there because we allow it to be. And we put things in place to make sure that it's, that it's there, that it has a place. And without these funds, I mean, like you said, Jeff, it's like, 75 to 80% of the the budget for conservation comes from Pittman-Robertson money. That's huge. Without that, the this country would look very different. This state would look very different. I mean, I, just think about, I don't know about you guys, but for me, every time I see a new subdivision go in, you know, what was a, a a block of woods or a field or something. Every time I see a, a new subdivision go in, it, it, it hurts my heart a little bit. I mean, I get it. People, it's growth, it's progress. People need places to live. I get it. You know, the house I'm living in used to be a field. You know, the house everybody's living in used to be a field at, at one point. So I get it. But there is a part of me that, like, you know, you drive through an area that you haven't been in, you know, five, 10 years or something. And you're like, Oh man, that used to be a nice open field. I used to see deer in there or, you know, whatever the case is. I, I'm sure anybody can think of an example of that where it's like, Oh, that used to be just green space, you know, woods, field, whatever. Now it's paved, you know, roads, houses, subdivision, whatever it is. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those are sort of real life tangible examples of 
the only reason there's places for critters to roam and places for us to hunt is because society decides that we want them there and that we're going to make provisions to allow them to be there. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, Amber actually kind of had her first moment of expansion and what it kind of looks like, uh, here last week, she grew up in Southern Ohio, small town, with kind of a contracting population, you know, less and less people are living there. Uh, and then she moved up here and there was a, a field, you know, we hadn't gone by, you know, this way in a while, but there was what used to be a farm field. We drove past, you know, after, you know, we hadn't been that way in maybe three, four years. And now it's a completely developed housing development. Yeah. She was just shocked. Like, she's like, I can't believe that. Like, I, you know, and it was just something she had never really experienced before because she had never, you know, where she grew up and had lived her whole life. It, everything was getting smaller, you know, you houses would go vacant and turn into woods again well you know the opposite is happening here it's you know urban sprawl you know it's the uh, people populations are pushing out from the major cities and farm fields and woodlots are turning into housing developments or at least country properties you know where People are cutting down the woods and having their, you know, two acres and a white picket fence or whatever. Yep. Yeah. And I guess um, uh, sort of along, I don't know about along those lines, but along the Pittman-Robertson lines, the, the other thing that we should probably mention is, you know, as hunter numbers go down. How does that impact things, right? Like license or, you know, right now we're kind of in this boom on firearms, but are those people hunters? You know, you you get into this balance, like we said, the, the states have to front the money to then be reimbursed by Pittman Robertson money. And that, that money comes from license sales. So as hunters go down, as license sales go down, you you get into this uh, this dichotomy, if you will, of how do we fund this? How do we how do we continue this into perpetuity? You know, there's uh, there's a real struggle there. States are trying to figure out how do we continue to make this work if the people that have traditionally funded it aren't buying enough or engaging enough to continue to fund it you know and you, you you'll hear people talk um about adding new taxes or or expanding taxes to you know to try to capture some of the 
I think I've heard them referred to as like non-consumptive users, backpackers, hikers, bird watchers, right? Those people use the outdoors. They enjoy the outdoors, but they're not funding. They're not paying anything to make sure to make, make sure I said that weird (laughs) to make sure that the outdoors continue to be there for them to go hike and bike and bird watch and backpack. And so, you know, are there, do we need to start looking at ways of bringing those people into the party, if you will, bringing them into the club? Have you guys heard about that at all? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think as the popularity of those activities goes up, um, they, there probably does need to be something past to kind of bring them, bring them into the, the club. I like the way you said that, you know, the, the one I can think about is like mountain biking. I've seen mountain biking really grow in popularity and the use of public land being, you know, converted to mountain biking. And I think those, those people would want, they would, once it was explained to them, you know, they, they would appreciate uh, being able to contribute you know, especially yeah. when it's a, it's a passive thing. It's just worked into the price of what you're already buying. And, you know, you don't think about it, but then you can take pride in like, well, my dollars are going to help conservation, help maintain these areas that I enjoy. Well, and that's a, that would be a, you know, because some of the counter arguments I've heard to like, you know, you hear people call like the backpack tax, right? Should we put an excise tax on backpacks? And then people say, well, you know, there's a lot of backpacks that are sold that are that never step foot into the woods or are never used for, you know, outdoor activities. So why am I paying a tax? You know, but mountain bikes is I mean, sure, you have some people that ride mountain bikes on the street, but. You know, anybody that's that's really into mountain biking, you're buying a mountain bike to ride it on mountain bike trails, right? I mean, that's that's right. what those guys and gals are into, right? It is, I mean, there's a relatively new, uh, within the past five years or so, uh, it used to be a golf course <clears throat> near us that was converted to a, I guess that's like a city park township or something owns it but it's a you know it's a walking and mountain bike trail park now so it's not you know it's not hunting they're they're not hunting on there but people go out and and walk and and hike and they've got mountain bike trails and we were there and i you know i would i wouldn't be surprised if Biking, cycling, mountain biking is another one of those things that is seeing a bit of a boom right now because it's kind of easy to social distance, right? You can go out and ride with your buddies and, you know, even if you're riding right. single file, you know, you're you're pretty well apart. Six, you're, right. 
don't know, maybe you don't want to be the guy in the back sucking up everybody else's, <laughs> everybody else's air, but, uh, maybe you just have to be the fastest guy. But, um, I, I guess back to what I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that's another market that is seeing a boom because of COVID and, and people trying to find things that they can do to do something other than sit at home, you know, whereas they normally would have went to restaurants or to, you know, shows or things that, that aren't happening right now. But yeah, this, this mountain bike park, I mean, there was tons of people there mountain biking, enjoying the trails and everything. And, and it's great to see. And to your point, Jeff, I, I wouldn't be surprised if those people, once it was explained, if they would be like, definitely, you know, yeah, count us in. We like these places. We want them to be there. We know that they aren't there by accident. So, yeah. All right. And a, another community that I think would be at least partially receptive to it is the the birder community, you know, bird watchers. Because at least people who watch waterfowl, a lot of those people are buying federal wetland stamps and state wetland stamps just to contribute to conservation. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, some places require that you have them to use their facilities, even as a bird watcher. Um, but a lot of them are just buying them to contribute to conservation. And as a sort of a, a work of art you know they're they're collect the collectability you know i can have a a book of wetland stamps and you know it's a collection of mine this is something i enjoy doing and i you know kind of as a i can contribute to conservation and then as a side thing i have these collectible stamps but yeah. I think they'd be relatively receptive if you found a way to, you know, passively tax them. You know, if it's I mean, I, I think binoculars is probably a really good one because right. most of the time, what are you doing with binoculars if you're not using them for the outdoors? You know, the only other reasons to spy on your neighbors, I Be guess. A creeper, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That's well, kind of what I was thinking, just kind of sitting here. I'm thinking that, in my mind, the next logical market or place to go would be all optics, not even just binoculars, but optics in general. As far as I know, there's no tax on scopes and spotting scopes and just optics in general. Those are all used for wildlife like you said, there's no purpose for them other than, I guess, being a peeping Tom. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. I mean, range finders would fall in there. All of that stuff, all optics. You know, I don't know. And it's, you know, like you said, that what makes it cool is that it was a self-imposed tax, essentially. And I feel like kind of along what Jeff was saying, like if you just it's education getting people on board and understanding that a lot of people i think want to 
donate or put money towards conservation to preserve what you know they enjoy and this is in terms of government and taxes and whatever this is about as surefire lockdown cut and dry your money is going towards what you want it to go towards as there is yeah. you know there's very little pork as they call it um you know i mean and it's just it is what it is it was very well written there's been very few amendments to it um and all the amendments that have been made were just kind of to add in different areas you know they amended it to add handguns they amended it to add archery equipment as those things kind of grew in popularity and i would argue that maybe it's time to do another amendment to add in whatever the next thing is optics biking you know like you said backpacks where do you draw the line between a hiking backpack and a kid's backpack to go to school you know it just it gets a little gray there but um with license sales decreasing in most states. Um, although right now we're booming with gun sales, if and when that tapers off, there is going to be a drop in these in this funding. So, Well, and I guess maybe to make a counter-argument to my own <laughs> argument is I think... Uh, I think the counter argument I would make is, you know, let's take mountain bikes, right? Yeah, I want a place to ride my mountain bike, but I want a place that has a parking lot where I can, you know, bring my truck or my, I guess, whatever vehicle, you know, you can put a bike rack on anything. A place where I can park my vehicle, uh, you know, a lot of these places have like a, a little bike service station you know they've got you know common tools cable tied to a post where you know if you need to tighten a a bolt or you got a low tire or something you need to air your tires up they've got you know air there that sort of thing and i want already established trails i'm not i don't i'm not real interested in just going to wayne national forest and riding my mountain bike through the woods right like i want trails to ride on that are clean and and main you know if a tree falls across them somebody comes and cuts the tree and you know so i'm all for funding that but i'm not i don't so much care about funding wildlife and making sure that there's wildlife to to hunt and that sort of thing so i guess i just pose that counter argument to say it it's right you know, it's while we can sit here and say like oh it's easy all you got to do is right taxis other it gets people. there it is gets counter- messy yeah yeah all right and you know the counter argument to that argument you know it becomes more in government more involved you know like okay that's what you want that's fine you can ride your mountain bike on these privately owned places or privately funded places keep them off of my national parks now we're excluding people from our public land you know it just kind of yeah how does that you know and that's right that gets messy quick (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's kind of one of those things like because as hunters and conservationists you know we're used to carrying the whole burden basically 
for for wildlife and right. we're, we're used to so in our heads it's like oh yeah i'm sure if you just asked another group they would do the same thing but you know maybe they uh, everyone's going to complain about something you know probably if we had you know if all hunters got to vote uh on whether or not you know the pittman robertson act stated in place you know there would actually be a pretty good argument you know with a hundred percent of people wouldn't say oh yeah obviously it should stay in place you know there would be hunters who would be against it so right right. enacting anything new is always difficult yeah right and it's yeah i mean it and i guess that kind of goes back um to the timing of all this if you really want to get into like the history of it like if you look at the history of this country in 1937 that falls very very close to the timing of the great depression um so people didn't have money and they're still coming out and saying take more of my money to preserve my you know the national treasure that is public land and whatever wildlife like so it's it kind of drives home more of a point of like i don't know i would say that we're selfish now or people are selfish now it's a different world we live in but it really really makes it pretty incredible that they came up with this self-imposed tax when people didn't really have x you know it wasn't a booming economy at that time (laughs) right and i mean it was enacted as a thing to kind of protect a a resource, you know, a food source, um, where hunting now is more changed to entertainment in most sense, you know. Oh um, man, that's that made me feel funny when you said that. What that it's changed to entertainment? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it is true. I mean, if you think of. If you were going to set your budget, you're not typically putting your hunting money in like, oh, that's groceries. You're putting it in your, you know, fun money, right? I, I guess. I mean, our our hunting does offset our grocery budget, right? We buy right. very little meat, so it does offset our our maybe recreation. Mm-hmm. I don't know entertainment, man. That just <laughs> yeah, that makes it have. I don't makes know. It when dirty. you said that, I was like, oh, don't call it that. Don't say that. <laughs> See, nah. I think I but think I get, that's I get your a, point though, Jeff. It is kind of a back. You know what I mean? Like when you're setting your budget, if you're someone who sets your budget, I would agree with you that money for guns and ammo, even though that is going to be used to hunt, comes as you know, that falls under fun money, blow money, play money, mm-hmm. not grocery money. <laughs> I agree with you there. However, it does yeah. decrease your grocery budget in the long run, assuming you're successful. Yeah. Well, and I also think like describing hunting as entertainment is better to in- encourage new hunters because it's really cheap, cheap fun. You know, what else can you do for that price? You know, it's relatively, I mean, especially, you know, deer hunting can get expensive, but dove hunting, you know, you 
you buy a, a hunting license, you buy a shotgun, you buy some shells, and you can have hours of fun. Yeah. I think it just it gets tricky with saying that killing something is fun. You know what I mean? Like, don't get me wrong. I enjoy myself immensely going hunting, but I don't necessarily enjoy the killing part. I enjoy the being outside. I enjoy hunting with, with you guys, with family, with buddies. Um, I like that, that feeling of, of satisfaction when it comes together. Right. The sport, the challenge. Yeah. That you put the work in, you, you, you know, you got up, you got out there, you suffered through the cold, whatever, you hiked in however far, you climbed to the top of the hill, whatever. And it all came together, you know, there's that that rush of adrenaline. But, yeah, I don't... I, I, I struggle. I get what you're right. saying on, right? like, where it falls in your budget, right? Like, yeah, right. it's well, it's sort of extra money right if, if and I've done right. that in the past right when we're when we were like really trying to to pay off our debt and stuff it's like I'm I, I'm not gonna go hunting this year because it's you know it's gas money it's it's you know it's money everything adds up it's hundreds of dollars every year that I could be right. putting toward debt right and right so, well and it's a vacation for a lot of people <laughs> right you know you take time off work Right. So if you're really trying to save money, you just forego that vacation, assuming your employer pays out vacation or whatever. But, you know, you don't take that week off work. You continue working and making money versus. So there is a entertainment. I see the entertainment. I I agree with both of you. <laughs> I see the enter. I see the entertainment side of it because it is. I mean, it's fun. It's a vacation. People enjoy doing it. But I also see, Jason, where you're coming from, where you don't want to. You want to be very careful not to say, I like to shoot and kill things. That's fun. Yeah. Um, right. But I also don't call it, oh, I'm going to shoot and kill things this weekend. I say I'm going hunting. Right. You know, right. Hunting is entertaining. Shooting and right. killing things is a uh, an aspect of it that uh, taking a life is kind of an unfortunate aspect in a way. I mean, I don't want to say it's unfortunate either you know tied up in the words but it's it's a necessary evil killing is a necessary evil to survive really right yeah I mean, you know? yeah a lot of this is semantics right like right because i mean we are just choosing to play a bigger part in that that sourcing meat the, the process of sourcing protein right the vast majority of people go to the store and buy it in prepackaged, you know, or even if they're going to the butcher shop, right? It's already in the cooler or they're going in and putting an order in for a half a beef and they come up and, and pick it up in boxes, you know, uh, vacuum packed frozen blocks of, of meat. So the killing is happening, right? We're just taking a more active role as hunters, a more active role in that that killing that acquiring right. of you know clean protein right 
right. and it comes right. with a lot of enjoyment. And, <laughs> right. And and to kind of bring this all back is like, you know, the the Pittman Robertson's kind of morphed into something that it it wasn't originally. You know, it was originally designed to protect a food source where now it's not so much a food source. It's it's more of a enjoyment thing and there's other areas of entertainment fun that could also be doing their share right right and i i just just for i guess to go back and correct maybe complete something that i said earlier that i just came across as i was kind of scrolling through another article um there is a cap on how much a state is allowed to get percentage wise. So I didn't realize this until I just came across it, but a state is not allowed to get more than 5%. So like land mass, like if your state size, you're, you know, even though Alaska is the size of half of the United States, they don't get half of the money. They're capped at 5%. And it goes the same for hunting license sales on both sides. You can get no more than, five percent of that whole pot okay so it's yes you do get more the bigger you are the more hunting license sales you are but you are capped at five percent of the total of the half i guess if that makes sense you know for each one Mm -hmm. um and there is a few territories that are also included like guam and some other Virgin Islands, I think they get like a half of a half of a half percent. It's some like super. <laughs> it's something very very small. I think it's like a half of a half of a percent or something. Okay. But they do get some form of money, and I guess just for argument's sake, Jeff, since you said you know, which I agree with you, this is kind of morphed into something different. I would argue or wonder how it would change funding if we changed the wording from land mass of your state to amount of public land in your state. Since the majority of this money is going towards funding public, publicly held land. Right. You know, but also Texas takes a huge, well, Texas doesn't have a ton Uh of public land and they take a, large portion alaska obviously there's a lot of public land in alaska right so in that case yes um but alaska doesn't collect much in terms of license sales because they don't have that many people that live there um so they take a you know a huge land portion but they have a lower percentage of their license sales you know sorry were you gonna finish jake no, I, no, that was it. I was just that's just something I thought of when I read that that half of that half goes towards total land mass. What comes to my mind is like Texas. A lot of Texas is privatized ranches and that kind of stuff. They don't have a comparatively to other states of their size, which there isn't a lot, but you know what I mean. They don't have a lot of public land based on their total land size. You know, there's other states in the West specifically that have much more public land and are much smaller than Texas. Right. I was going to ask Jeff, what could, what do you mean by the rich get richer? Well, if it, if you do it by the amount of public land, I mean, cause the money 
part of this money is being used to acquire public land. So if you use the amount of public land you have to determine how much money you get, you're getting more money to then buy more public land, where states that have little public land are getting less money. And then they, you know, so the people who already have public land would get more public land and the people who don't have much would stay with not much. I see. I'm, so I'm willing to meet in the middle. We'll just do it half and half. Half based on total land size, half based on amount of public land. We'll just divide that half in half. I, mean, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I think the current system works. Yeah. I, well, and I think the argument is, like Texas specifically, is the the wildlife there is still being managed, but those, you know, they're their DNR or, or whatever they call it there is having to, to work a lot more with private landowners and, and, you know, set harvest goals and, and do things that way versus how we do things say here or in a, in a Western state with, that has a lot of public land. The right. money's still yeah. being spent on conservation. It's just right. it's handled differently. Right. I mean, that's the beauty of the of the way it's written, right? It has to be spent on conservation. Right. right. So. But, yeah. yeah. Another. I was just I was just trying to think of a way to get more money poured into our public land specifically to help uh-huh. sure. offset all the costs of managing those. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Another thing that kind of to keep in mind with uh the whole hunter retention and recruitment thing is, you know, with Pittman Robertson, you kind of take that money that and multiply it, if you will, almost, especially for your state. You know, if you can get more hunting licenses sold in your state, that gets your state more money for hunting. You know, and it's also kind of, you know, everyone blames the, you know, out-of-state hunters for a lot of things. Well, they're buying hunting licenses that are then counting towards our numbers that then get us more federal money. And they're only coming for a week. You know, they're not using the resources as much as a resident hunter typically would. You know, or a lot of people blame, you know, want to complain about the you know, I don't know, the the dove hunters or the squirrel hunters, you know, ruining their hunts. And, well, that guy, all he's doing is hunting, you know, basically the most plentiful species in the state. And, you know, so he's not really taking much from, you know, he's not using much resource, but he's buying a hunting license. He's buying the ammo and he's contributing to this larger conservation. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm really encouraged and hopeful with some of the things that like the, you know, QDMA has going on with like trying to recruit adult hunters. You know, I know QDMA is doing some things where, you know, they'll go to farmer's markets and give people samples of, of, venison 
as a sort of a conversation starter on sourcing clean protein, clean wild protein. And I'm hoping that because like in an ideal, in an ideal world, they, you know, the organizations that are, are, you know, that, that have come to this realization that like, yeah, youth is great, but, but youth doesn't have a car to get hunting and, and, you know, youth is maybe not the best place to spend our recruiting budgets um, and hunt and, you know, trying to recruit adult hunters. I'm hoping that, that like they've got enough of that groundwork and, and kinks worked out to really capitalize on this newfound um, interest, excitement, fear. I mean, just to be blunt, fear around the grocery store, not having meat. And so I need to find other ways, you know, I'm hoping that this could turn into a big boom, right? Like they've got the kinks worked out and they're ready. They've got the program set up. You know, how are we going to do this? What works? What doesn't? How much time do we need to spend with these people? You know, and they can really yeah. kind of um, cash in, if you will, on this new interest, and we yeah. can we can get some boosts in in recruitment numbers. Yeah, and I think a good uh, well, and another area is the reactivation area. Yeah, you know, think about how many people you know who they they know how to hunt. They. They know everything they need to do. It's an easy transition. They just don't do it for whatever reason. Right. They, they probably have... still have a shotgun sitting in a closet or something. Like, Right. They just don't have the, the land to do it or the buddies to do it or, uh, yeah. you know. And, I mean, because what I think about is the other youth, you know, that I hunted with as a kid, you know, outside of you guys i don't think any of those other youths are hunting anymore you know my friends in school i don't think any of them who were hunting as kids hunt anymore and you know our dad's friends kids i don't think any of them hunt anymore right you know but they they all have the skills you know they they all know how to hunt they just don't for whatever reason yeah yeah. So this was this turned out to be an interesting one. It, it uh, this conversation took some un you know we we didn't we set out to talk about Pittman Robertson and and you know we kind of went took some some twists and turns in the conversation and it it uh, turned out to be an interesting an interesting one. So if uh, like I said at the beginning. Hopefully, you know, at the very least, this was a good refresher. Maybe you, uh, maybe you learned something out of this, got some takeaways. And, you know, for me, it was just sort of a thought-provoking conversation on the funding, how we continue to fund it, how this is all here because we decide we want it here. And we, you know, we put things in place to, to make sure that it, continues to be here so with that 
I think we'll sign off and let everybody get back to <laughs> whatever it is you're doing during this summer of COVID. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. All right, that's going to be it for this week. So hopefully there was something informative in there for you. Like I said, share this information with your buddies, share it with new hunters, share it with old hunters. Maybe they they already know this, that's great, but maybe they don't. And I think it's good to get the information out to people. So with that, thank you. Thank you all for continuing to listen, continuing to subscribe and share. You can follow us on social media. We're Ohio Huntsman on Facebook, Ohio Huntsman underscore podcast on Instagram. And with that, thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you all next week.